Turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We began a sermon series last week in the Gospel of Matthew, and we examined the baptism of Jesus. We turn to chapter 4. Jesus has just been baptized, and God has just declared in a thunderous way from the open heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. His ministry is now inaugurated. God's spirit is leading, pushing him into the wilderness for a time of testing. Now be certain God himself is not the tempter, but he allows his son to go to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. As Jesus left the Jordan River where he had been baptized, he climbed the barren hills marked by the ragged edge of the Rift Valley. He knew deep down in his soul that a time of testing lay ahead of him. His ministry had begun. The audience had gathered. The strains of the opening overture were echoing in the Jordan Valley. He ascended up into the wilderness. The curtain had risen on the great cosmic drama of the Christ. You know, things are never the same after a time in the wilderness. You are shaped for better or for worse every time. Jesus was coming to just such an experience in his ministry, a time of testing. And Jesus is all alone except Mark tells us there are some wild animals there. But it was not a wild beast that Jesus would face. Rather, it was much worse than that. He would have to face a formidable foe in the person of Satan himself. Whether he came to Jesus in a personal form, whether he haunted him in his dreams at night, the reality is whatever he, his presence might have been, it was real and terrible and overwhelming. And Jesus had to deal with it. Jesus fast 40 days and 40 nights. It reminds us that in Matthew, he is a new Moses who leads the people to a new liberation. Moses himself had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he received the law, the word of God. And now this new Moses, this Messiah had come, his ministry had begun, and now he is focused on God after these 40 days, devoting himself the entirety of the time to devotion with God, separating himself for those days from the worldly distractions and sharpening his spiritual sensitivity and perception, testing his ability to deal with the enemy who wouldn't like any of his ministry, preparing himself for the great adventure of ministry upon which he was about to be launched. Jesus is a hungry man. He is throbbing with pangs of starvation. And the tempter takes the stage 
Odd, Satan thinks he's caught a hungry man at his weakest moment, at his point of vulnerability, when the reality is Jesus is so focused after these 40 days of fasting that he's at his spiritual height. I'm not sure Satan completely understands spirituality. He's a formidable adversary to be sure, but he is so focused on the material and the physical, and he's usually successful with us in those realms, but, well, when he's challenging the very Son of God, well, Jesus is focused on the spiritual. Jesus has been praying, getting ready for his ministry, and fasting trying to make sure that his ministry would take the shape that God would want it to have. What would be the center of his ministry? What would be the measure of success in his ministry? How was Jesus going to secure the loyalty of his listeners? Jesus knew options existed for how one might do ministry. The question was, which option was he going to choose amongst the options? Jesus' questions are our questions today. If we're going to live our lives doing ministry, and surely every disciple, follower of Jesus is a minister, how are we going to minister in a way that is pleasing to God? Satan tries to divert Jesus' ministry down a very bad path. The first temptation of Jesus is this, to remove himself from a difficult situation by an act of disobedience. To remove himself from a difficult situation by an act of disobedience. Look at verses 1 through 4 of Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. The first temptation is to remove himself from a difficult situation by an act of disobedience. Now, in our minds, we need to realize, you know the end of this. Forget that for a moment. We have someone who is fully human, who's really hungry, who knows the pangs of hunger. This is not a a prescripted drama. This is real. The temptation is real. He has a real choice to make, and he is starving. And yet, he does have the power to turn the stones to bread, for he's the creator of the cosmos. This is the same tempter who came to the first Adam, Jesus being the second Adam. In the first Adam, we all die. In the second Adam, Paul says, we're all made alive. The one who took aim at Adam and Eve and was successful and brought the death to all of us now takes aim at the second Adam, Jesus, to make sure that we don't have eternal life. Everything is on the line here. If this second Adam falls like the first one, 
we are doomed to death in the grave. God must have seemed unduly delayed if you haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. You remember what was said at the baptism in 317, the last verse, look above in verse 17. This is my beloved son. Notice what the tempter says in verse 3 of chapter 4. The the thunderous voice had just said, this is my beloved son. And now the tempter says, if you are the son of God. Those words, this is my son, are still echoing out loud. And the tempter says, well, let's just see about that. If you really are the Son of God. Remove yourself out of this starving situation by creating bread from stones. All of us have that temptation to remove ourselves from a difficult situation by an act of disobedience. Amy is 16 years old. She sees positive sign on a home pregnancy test. Her parents will be devastated. She will never be just one of the girls at school again. And, well, she hasn't told anyone except for she's told Rebecca, her best friend. She knows she'll eventually have to tell. I mean, you can't keep something like that a a secret forever. Is there any way to avoid the shame? Is there any way to skip the embarrassment and the guilt? Is there any way to get back to life the way that it used to be? One trip to the doctor's office and things could be taken care of. No embarrassment, no shame, no one would ever have to know. Amy is tempted to remove herself from a difficult situation by an act of disobedience. Fred is 27, just bought a new house with his wife and daughter, four years old, Madison, Well, they they just miscalculated. Now they've got the house payments and the car payments and all the math was supposed to work for all the payments, but they're in over their head. And who knew about the unexpected medical bills for Madison, their four-year-old, and the taxes? Well, he hadn't calculated the taxes that way. Well, everybody fudges on their expense report every now and then. It's a tax-free solution. Besides, the way he figures it, next year, well, it can't be that bad, and he'll be back on his feet, and he'll make it all right. Fred is tempted to remove himself from a difficult situation by an act of disobedience. You're hungry. You could do it. Just turn the stones to loaves of bread. Jesus responds because he knows the word of God. God had humbled Israel by allowing them to go hungry and, well, then in the wilderness, supplying them with the manna. And they were supposed to realize that man does not live on bread alone. There's another kind of nourishment. There's something beside our physical bodies. There our spiritual existence But we are to be nourished by every word that comes from the word that created. Jesus knew that if he fell for the temptation, that if he turned the stones into bread, he would be putting his own need ahead of obedience to the Father. 
God wants Jesus to ponder his priorities because he has called him to the highest good. Let us pray. Oh God, how often are we tempted to remove ourselves from a difficult situation by an act of disobedience. May we live and be nourished by every word that falls from the mouth of God. Amen. Look at verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him into the holy city and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The second temptation is a temptation of sick religion. The temptation of sick religion. Jump Jesus. Suddenly Jesus finds himself atop the tallest part of the temple in Jerusalem. About 450 feet above the floor of the Kidron Valley, jump, Jesus. Everyone will see and will be amazed, and God will protect you, and then they will follow you to the ends of the earth. One, two, three, ready, Jesus. Jump, the devil declares. The devil's making a new pitch. Wow, Jesus. Yeah, you've made it clear that bread's not your priority. You said what you want to do is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, let me give you a word from God. Psalm 41, Satan knows his scripture too. Look what it says there in verse 6. He will give his angels charge concerning you, and their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now ready, leap. God will save you. One, two, three. What's wrong, Jesus? I've counted twice. I'm ready for you to jump. Didn't God? You wanted God's word. God's word says the angels will rush in and rescue you. Now this is going to make a big show, and your followers will really stand by you. I know you trust God. You said you wouldn't turn those breasts to stone. Now, it looks to me like you don't trust him as much as you said you did. Satan always twists things, doesn't he? Upside down. Satan has a way of turning things upside down. A man was walking down a narrow path, not paying much attention to where he was going. All of a sudden, he went over the side of the cliff, and he just reached up, well, just a, a reflex, and grabbed a branch hanging on the side of this cliff that was hundreds of feet down. And, well, he just realized he couldn't hold on for very long, and he, he started shouting, Is anybody up there? Is anybody up there? Yes, I'm up here, came a voice. Well, who's that? The man well, he was desperate now. The Lord, the voice returned. 
The man said, Lord, help me. If it's the Lord, help me. That's great. Do you trust me? The voice said from the top. The man said, I trust you completely, Lord. I'm glad it's you who, who hears my cry. Good, the voice said. Let go of the branch then. Well, the man said, what? The voice said, let go of the branch then. Long silence. Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> Just jump, Jesus. The Lord will save you. Don't you know your songbook, Jesus? But Satan has twisted things. He's left out part of Psalm 91 where it says, he will guard you in all your ways. God has <clears throat> promised providential care for life. And as we live it out in our normal fashion, God has not promised to be part of a high-flying miracle circus. He's not promised supernatural intervention when we decide to jeopardize our life in order to prompt him into action. Do you know what the false messiahs did who, who have come along through the ages? They all tried to push God to act. Thutis came along and said he would split the Jordan waters and everyone would know he was a messiah. Simon Magus comes along and says he will fly through the air and then you will know that he's the messiah. The real messiah wouldn't get caught up in the miracle circus business. Do not, Deuteronomy 6.16, but the Lord, your God, to the test. The words came back from the time when Moses struck the rock in order to get the water to satisfy the grumbling Israelites in Exodus 17. Faith is simple trust, not doubt, looking for proof. Jesus does not leap. He does not move a single inch there from standing atop the temple. The temptation is to yield to sick religion. How do we know when a religion is sick? A, we know religion is sick when it's self-glorifying. Sick religion always brings glory to man. It's a kind of religion that calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees to give their alms there on the corner of the streets or to pray out loud for all the ears to hear and fast with long faces. Sick religion is self-glorifying. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land in the Acts of the Apostles. They give a portion, but they, they claim to give it all, and it's a sick religion. It is sick religion that drives us to speak when we have nothing to say, to accept a position in the church simply for status or to assert our views not because they're helpful to the church but just because they're our views. That's why. Secondly, sick religion is miracle dependent. The devil drew on the popular expectation which Jesus knew that the Messiah would appear suddenly atop the temple and all the people would gather around the new great miracle worker and it would reunite the people of Israel. People have an insatiable desire for signs and wonders. Throughout the Gospels, they ask him, show us one of your tricks, Jesus. But Jesus confronted and rejected the devilish desire. He began that rejection right there from the temple heights. 
Jesus knew that miracle-dependent religion is just as strong as the last miracle that it experiences. It can never be satisfied. God, of course, in the Gospels performs miracles. He performs them today, but he doesn't want us to love him for the sake of miracles. He wants us to love him because of who he is. Ask yourself this morning, does my relationship with God depend on God's doing miracles for me? A third thing about sick religion is scripture abusive. He misquotes Psalm 91. He takes it out of his context and he twists it around and uses the word of God for his own purposes. And Jesus, on the other hand, takes a passage from the Torah and uses it beautifully in context to refute the twisting of Scripture. We must ask ourselves this morning, am I submitting to Scripture or am I manipulating Scripture to submit to me? Are we submitting to Scripture? Or do we twist the Word of God to buttress what we've already concluded on our own? And fourthly, D, sick religion is God dishonoring. Satan wanted Jesus to use God that God would be just one more tool in Jesus' box of tools to accomplish what Jesus wanted to accomplish. Jesus declared that we are to reverence God and to make certain that we live in submission to Him. And for Jesus, that meant the cross. For us, it means continuing to die to self. Ask yourself, is my religion characterized by my submission to God or by my manipulation of God to be another tool in the success of my life. The lure of the deception of sick religion. The lure and the deception. Satan offered Jesus, the devil's kind of religion, it leaves self on the throne. Now, Jesus, you better take control of the way this story's going to unfold. If you don't, somebody else is going to be in charge. He might even whispered about the cross right then. You better be careful. If you do it your father's way, it's not going to be good. You better take control. There's another way. You better take charge right now. Grab hold of your destiny. Start right now. Come on, jump. God's got to save you. You're his son. The temptation to remain in control of our own lives, maybe even by doing what appears to be good, can be attractive. Sick religion lures us because we're sinners. We are separated from God, and we're awful fearful of what our life might become what the next chapter in our story might be if we really do things God's way. Let us pray. Oh God, may we be willing to walk 
the hard way. Whatever path you call us down, even if it's the path of the cross, may we not manipulate your word. May we not use you as a tool to rewrite our own story. May we not let our faith depend upon miracles or answered prayers, but rather may our faith be based on our obedience to you. Amen. Three verses 8 through 11. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's Deuteronomy 6.13. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The third temptation is a temptation of power. The seduction of power. Having failed in his first two attempts, on the third try, Satan drops all pretense. He takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. In fact, Psalm 2.8 says, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. And so, Jesus seeing all the kingdoms of the world that God had promised his Messiah in the Psalter, it is tempting to be sure. It's tempting because the way of obedience is going to be long, difficult, and painful. Why not come to terms with the God of this world and and do it another way? Why not compromise just a bit? Doesn't it end up at the same end anyway? None of us are immune from the temptation for power. We may seek it for our own sake, for our ego, for self-protection, for status, for even the power to do good. And power attempts us in every arena, our family, our business, our community, our government, our church. It's there for the taking. And why not grab a little for yourself? Coercive power comes at the greatest price. Coercive power comes at the greatest price. If Jesus finds himself accepting Satan's offer, the Lord would have to pay a terrible price. First of all, he would have to reject God's plan for his ministry, which is power through servanthood, a throne that's 
a cross. Washing feet. Touching and praying for children who were the powerless. Thinking about the widow and the orphan. Yeah, if Jesus goes for the power, he pays the price of missing the ministry of servanthood to which he's been called. Oh, Jesus, this servanthood thing is untried. Don't you know the great men, how they've reigned by power? If you're going to be the Lord, you better grab some. Let's get it done. If you'll just take a knee for just a moment, I'll give you all the kingdoms your father has promised. We'll end up in the same spot, and you'll avoid the cross. Won't have to wash any feet. Secondly, the price is he must turn from God and turn to Satan. If you're going to be a power grabber, you have to turn away from God and turn to Satan. You have to take a knee. For coercive power is always the tool of the evil one. Jesus refuses and thank goodness, remember, it would have been an easier way out. And remember, it's a, a real man with a real choice, and the cross looks real. And he says, begone, Satan. For we are to worship God and serve him only. He made that decisive choice to go the way of servanthood, to worship only God Jesus saw that connection between coercive power and Satan. In order to have one, you have to worship the other. We, too, have a clear choice to make. Will we worship God only? We must ask Christ to come into our lives and rule and get off the throne ourselves. We must lay aside all claims to power and take up our cross daily and follow him. Examine the areas of your life, your family relationships, your personal relationships, your business relationships, your community relationships. If you really didn't go the way of power and went the way of humility and servanthood, to whom would you need to apologize this week? And what would you have to say? How many policies and procedures might need adjusting or a radical revision? Would the way we treat our enemies have to change? For the gospel is the strangest story. It finds its power through dying for the enemy, a holy God dying for a sinner. 
Satan leaves. We're almost surprised that Satan leaves so quickly, despite the fact that God's word says, James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When Jesus does this, the Satan knows he's missed it and he leaves immediately. The devil left him and the angels of God come and care for him. We know how Jesus dealt with temptation. He knew the word of God, so he knew right from wrong, and he could not be confused. He didn't give in to remove himself from a difficult situation, from an act of disobedience, and he didn't yield to the seduction of sick religion, and he said no to power. I know how Jesus reacted when he had a date on the calendar with the devil. Now the question is, how will you and I react when the Spirit of God likewise leads us into the wilderness? We're always different after the wilderness. Let us pray. Oh God, there's some folks who are facing a temptation right now to take the easy way out. Some who are tempted to manipulate Scripture to move forward with their own plans for their life. And some who've forgotten servanthood a long time ago because power feels so pleasant when it rages through our veins. May we watch the obedience of our Lord who loved his father and knew the words of his father in such a way as he would stay the path. A path that, yes, indeed would journey to Calvary, but would also end with an empty tomb, an ascension, and being seated at the right hand of the Father. Father, Satan demands to sift us and test us. And may we be ready to resist him and follow only our Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.